you know, I mean, just kid from Lick Skillet just sometimes doesn't get technology just right. So who'd have thunk it? Uh, man, welcome in to Lindsay Lane North. I am uh, Alan Ostrisky, as Will said. I'm the pastor here at North. We're so thankful for you being here today to worship with us this week before Thanksgiving. And uh, while we're certainly excited about Thanksgiving and certainly thankful for what all God has done in the life of our church, we are pushing very hard as a church uh, toward December 11th. Uh, we are doing something we've never done before, which doesn't have that happens quite often here. That's nothing new that we're doing something new. Um, but we are having a Christmas house here, and so you'll hear more about that. You've heard in the last couple of weeks. Some of you are already uh, getting your non-perishable goods and those things to help create. Christmas meals for families. Uh, I've, I've, we've, I've talked with some. We know that we've got families, multiple, multiple families that are going to be here for that. Um, but we're going to have a Christmas concert. Santa's going to be here. We're going to have pictures with Santa, and you'll be able to take home pictures um, with Santa. So bring your kids. And we want to invite you guys here. We want to invite North folks here uh, as well so that we can uh, minister and interact with some of the families. But also, so it's not just those families that are in here. So we want to be very strategic with that. We're going to have a Christmas concert, and I'm telling you from things that I have seen in the past that our band can pull off, it's going to be serious. So uh, I'm excited. No pressure, Will, but it's going to be serious. Um, all right? And so uh, that's going on. It's going to be fun. We'll have stuff for the kids, all that good stuff. We want you here for that. Uh, and if you are bringing in food, make sure that you do that. I think we've got it where we can turn in the food there in the children's uh, area, and then we will get that where it needs to go for the 11th. But I'm really excited about that opportunity. We're going to be working with uh, Angel Tree and those things as well, like we have in the past. But, but that is something that we are uh, excited with. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're continuing in our series. Uh, in our series in the book of Mark walking through the first eight chapters of the book of Mark as we talk about the ministry that Jesus had with the multitude. And we know, we've talked about how Jesus is calling the multitude to himself, not to call a gigantic group of people, but he's calling followers. He's calling a small group from out of the crowd who would commit to following him with abandon in their life. We talked about two weeks ago, uh, or excuse me, last week, we talked about how he taught the people. He taught in parables, right? That if we would look at the parables, they're not just in fun story, not just an illustration, not just a painting, but they're a mirror, right? That tells us something about us. And then if we are willing to adjust us, if we are willing to come to him on his terms, we look through the parable and we see something incredible and spectacular about who God is and how he has revealed himself through his word. And so Jesus is going around Galilee teaching in a way that nobody had ever seen before, but he doesn't just do that. But he's also teaching, as he's teaching, he is doing things that nobody has ever done before. And so in our, our message today is Jesus did the miraculous before the multitude. 
right? He wasn't just teaching them. He was doing miraculous things in their presence. In the first eight books, eight, I keep saying that, and I do that, I've done this an entire series. In the first eight chapters, that stuff flies all over me, uh, if you can't tell. In the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, we see 12 examples of specific miracles that Jesus performs. Now, that doesn't even count the ones where it says, and Jesus healed many in the home, or Jesus healed many as he was going, right? But 12 specific miracles in eight little chapters tell us that Jesus was doing things that nobody had ever seen before. So why? Why was Jesus doing it? In his ministry to the multitude, why was he performing these miracles? Number one, I believe it's for confirmation, Confirmation. He was doing what the people had been taught the Messiah would do. Now, there's plenty of miraculous signs that Jesus does, but there's three of them that are very specific to who he was as Messiah. It was a checklist of sorts that Jesus fulfilled, proving to be the Messiah. Now, these were not things that are necessarily addressed in the Old Testament Scripture, but this is how they were interpreted by the people of the day. These were things that nobody had ever seen done. And so, obviously, if a bunch of religious rabbis and priests can't do it, then obviously it must be just because they're not the Messiah, right? Because they hadn't seen it done, they would just attribute it to, well, this is the Messiah. This is a miracle that only the Messiah could perform. The first one we find in John chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. We're just making reference to it. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. This had never happened before. No one had ever healed someone that had been born blind. Remember they asked, who who sinned, his parents or him? Now they actually taught, the Jews actually taught that you could choose sin in the womb. Right? Like you could sin and you could revolt against your mother or, you know, kick her or something. So all of my kids need to, never going to give account of that. Right? They, some of them kicked me through their mama. Right? But, uh, but they, they, you could choose wrong in the womb. Right? And erroneous teaching, but that's what they taught. Because that was the only explanation that someone would be born blind. Remember the story? Jesus spits in the mud. Spits in the dirt, creates mud, rubs it on his eyes, tells him to go and wash, right? Strange miracle, kind of gross, but hey, we're being healed, right? We're being, the blind man is being healed. And then he responds in faith. We know that he responds in faith because he goes to the pool. He could have been like, this dude just spit in my eye and rubbed mud on me. Like, I ain't doing anything, he says. Nasty, right? But he doesn't. He goes and he washes and he's clean and all of a sudden he can see. We see in Mark chapter 3, actually, a reference to this, this, this next miracle, casting out a mute demon. So in Mark chapter 3, we hear some of the conversation after the miracle has happened. But in Matthew 12, we have the whole story. Jesus cast out a mute demon. The, now, casting out demons, exorcism, was actually not that rare in Jewish culture. Uh, the rabbis, the priests would come in and they would, uh, they would ask the demon. They would create a conversation with the, the demon-possessed person and they would find out the demon's name. 
And then in finding out the demon's name, they would cast out the demon with his name and using, obviously, the name of the Lord, right? And, and that demon would be exercised. But if they couldn't come up with the name, then that demon couldn't be cast out. Well, Jesus exercises a demon out of a man who was dumb. He could not speak. He was mute. And so Mark 3 gives us record. And, and it was so condemning because the rabbis, can you imagine this? They've taught their whole life that the Messiah will do these things. And now Jesus is doing these things. And they're going, oh, how'd he do it? Um, the devil helped him. That's what it was. And so that's the conversation about he, he cast him out by the spirit of Beelzebub. And then Jesus responds with a house divided, can't stand, right? But they had to come up with some, they were scrambling to come up with some alternate indicator. Uh, some alternate explanation. In Mark 1, we see the third of the messianic miracles. Only the Messiah could perform as it was taught by the Jewish leaders. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. Let's read this together. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will make me clean, or if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, and this is important, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. You see, leprosy was synonymous with sin and uncleanliness in that day. To have leprosy, we're unclear of if, if leprosy was a specific, it literally means a skin disease, right? So probably many skin diseases got roped into this. Uh, but we only have a record of two people before this being healed of leprosy. One is Miriam, Moses' sister. She was healed of leprosy. The second is Naaman. Remember, Naaman was healed of leprosy as well. But here's the problem. Nobody under Jewish law had ever gone through the ritual of cleansing as a leper, that they were healed from leprosy. Naaman was a Gentile. Naaman was a Gentile, and so obviously the Jewish rules would not apply in this instance, so he would be outside of the purview of the Jewish law. But Miriam was cleansed before the Jewish law existed, right? You got to have Moses and Sinai before you have the Jewish law. And so he was, they were, he would, she was healed before the Jewish law even existed. So nobody in all the Old Testament and all the time and all the history that went through, no one had ever been healed as a leper. But here's this eight-day ritual that has to happen that's laid out in the Old Testament that all the rabbis would know, kind of a break-in-case-of-emergency situation, but they would all know and recognize it. And so Jesus tells them, go and present yourself to the temple. The, those working in the temple. You see, the, the way a leper was treated was very clear. As a leper, you are expelled from society. 
You've heard about leper colonies. These were whole towns and cities of people that had leprosy that were cast out from society. They didn't care what you did, just you can't stay here, right? Don't care where you go, just can't stay here. And they would cast them out of social circles. They would have no interaction with family. To, to be a leper, again, you were unclean, ceremonially unclean. And by extension and by symbol, you were sinful. You were ridden with sin. You were tainted. Not only that, but you would have to wear tattered clothing. You couldn't wear fine clothing because people wouldn't be able to know and distinguish who the lepers were from the others. And so you would wear tattered clothing. And if that didn't get people's attention, you would have to yell out in any social setting that you ever came in contact with. You just happened to cross somebody on the road. You had to cry out, unclean. You had to announce your uncleanliness. It was synonymous with sin. And there had never been a person healed of leprosy. Eight days worth of rituals, significant sacrifices that had to be made, but nobody had ever experienced it. The only problem with leprosy was that you were unclean. And so nobody could mess with you to clean you up because you were unclean. And in touching you, according to Jewish law, in touching what is unclean, you become what? Crowd? Unclean. So you, you, nobody could heal you. Nobody could really help you because you were dirty. And so it became synonymous with sin. And so I brought by way of object lesson today a jar of pure water. The jar of water, symbolic of the way we were before sin. We were untainted, we were undiseased, we were pure, we were clean. And from the sin of Adam, we became tainted. We, we began to operate outside of what the in, clear intent God had for us as his creation didn't take God by surprise, but we had been tarnished with sin. And so as soon as sin entered the picture, leprosy, disease, unrighteousness, all of these things, Sorry, this is solely to keep me from getting messy. All of these things tainted us. And so what was once pure and within God's design had been, made, been tarnished, had been dirty. Those created in God's image had dirtied his image. For God, for Jesus to heal a leper synonymous with sin, reminding all the people of their uncleanliness. Though no person could touch something that was unclean and make it clean in your notes, only the Messiah can clean the unclean. What we see in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus meeting a messianic credential. He, as the Messiah, was the only one who could interact with 
something that was unclean, with a leper in this case, but by extension, sin in general. And once the man had contact with the Messiah, he was clean. One touch from Jesus radically transformed the outlook of humanity. And so, and so we see this in the, in, the, in the miracles, right? We see with this understanding that we have been made clean by Christ. And so he has touched us, he has made us clean. And once we are clean, we can't be unclean again. Not only, here's the incredible effect, right? Once, once we have been clean, sin's effect no longer has a way into our life, right? We have been cleaned and cleaned forever. So he came to meet a messianic credential. He was proving that he was who he said he was. It was by confirmation that he performed these miracles, but it was also out of compassion. Also out of compassion. Read with me in Mark chapter 6. There's two places where we find the word compassion. Jesus responding in compassion. And both of them have to do with people eating. Praise the Lord. Amen? Can I get a witness? We're about to do some of that, right? So, hey, we'll just get in the spirit of thanksgiving and see how God showed compassion and fed a whole bunch of folks. But in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus having compassion on the crowd. This word compassion is very interesting, very graphic. The word compassion has connected with it the idea of bowels or guts. And before you think that's really weird, we have a similar expression. Have you ever done something just because you had a gut feeling? Like just a, I just had a gut feeling. I could just, I could feel the disturbance and the force. Like there was, I, I, I just, I can't quantify it. I just know I am moved by something deeply. This is the idea of compassion. And Jesus responds in compassion in Mark 6 to the feeding of the 5,000, and then in Mark 8 to the feeding of the 4,000 when he divides fishes and loaves. But let's read in Mark chapter 6 this occasion. Beginning in verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going, and they recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them, right? They ran, they saw Jesus from afar in a boat, and they ran out, and now the crowds that they left, crowds have now accumulated again. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He saw the multitudes, and he had compassion. On them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were unclean. They were without direction. They were without purpose and design. And he began to teach them many things. He's moved by compassion and begins to teach them. And he teaches them for a dadgum long time. 
Mark chapter 8 tells us that he taught the 4,000 for three days. And y'all thought I was long-winded. Now, y'all would probably remind me I'm not the son of God, which would be a point well taken, so I'll keep, I'll keep it brief, all right? For three days he taught. And you know what they said after? They, everybody was like, man, everybody's really hungry. Well, let's, let's let them go home, right? But Jesus moved with compassion not only to teach them, but also to feed them, to meet their needs. There was not food sufficient to supply the needs of the entire multitude. And so Jesus was the only person that was capable of meeting that need. And he met the need in severe food poverty at that time. He met the need, blessed, broke it, gave it to his disciples. It was distributed out. And y'all, there was leftovers to spare. He met a need. And so compassion tells us, right, that Jesus, the Messiah, wasn't just checking things off the list. Oh, they say the Messiah can't do this, or can only, do, only the Messiah can do this? Well, here you go. Well, the Messiah can only do this? Well, here you go. Here's all the proof. He wasn't just meeting a criteria. He was meeting need. And he would find people at their greatest times of need. Mark 5 tells us, an entire chapter of Jesus just running around meeting people's needs, right? There are times that he does things very intentional, but there's times in Scripture where he doesn't, where he is responding to need as they arise. Mark chapter 5, we're told the story of Jairus, the temple official who comes to Jesus and tells him, my daughter is deathly sick. And so he leaves where he's at, what he's doing, and he goes and follows Jairus. But on his way, this giant crowd of people that followed Jesus everywhere, again, in Galilee, he had developed a following, he had developed fans, he had developed a multitude. He begins walking and he has an encounter with the woman with the issue of blood who has had the issue for 12 years and, by the way, was just as unclean as the leper by definition, by Jewish definition. And she thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be clean. And Jesus doesn't just heal her, but he stops and intentionally turns around and addresses the woman, figures out who she is, and then addresses the woman and says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And while he's doing that, a man comes and tells Jairus, Hey, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's already died. And Jesus doesn't say, well, hey, man, I tried. Sorry about that. My bad. What does he do? He tells him, don't fear, just believe. That's his message. Don't fear, just believe. And he goes he talks to all the professional mourners that are there crying that you paid to cry in Jewish culture. Weird people. But I feel like there are some that could totally do that in this culture. Um, like you are paid to cry for, cry for things because you just like to cry. Uh, and so the mourners, he tells them, look, don't, why are you crying? She's not dead. She's sleeping. And she goes and he heals Jairus's daughter. You see, what we find in this through his compassion is Jesus is the only one who can really meet needs. Only the Messiah can intervene to meet needs. 
The question is, are you in need of him? Listen to Mark, go, turn to Mark 2. I know we're skipping around a bit. Turn to Mark 2. It's what happens when you preach eight chapters in four weeks. You skip. Mark 2, verse 17. Jesus has just extended an invitation to a man named Levi that we know as Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's a sinner. Dirty, rotten, cheat. And he tells Matthew to follow me. Issues the familiar command that he's issued to all of his disciples. And Matthew follows him. But then the religious rulers get wind of it. And they begin to ask the disciples, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? We find Mark 2, 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. God, may we not be righteous in our own eyes. May we not find our righteousness or our worth or our value in what we can do on our own. But God, may we find our value in you. And God, may you meet the desperate need in our life to be clean and then to be refined day by day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So what did Jesus mean? Was he telling all the, all the Pharisees, hey, y'all don't worry about it. Y'all are righteous. I'm talking to all these sinners over here. That may be certainly what they heard, but that is not what Jesus meant. Jesus was on record for, for, for talking to the Pharisees in a way that proved that he didn't think they were a bunch of righteous folk. What he was saying was, these people don't rec you don't recognize your sickness. You think you are righteous. Do you know what a doctor is good for? A doctor is good for those that recognize that they're sick. There are some of us in this room that you sniffle one time, dadgummit, you're going to the doctor. And you're getting every antibiotic that you can possibly be thrown and you're going to take it. And that's just how you are. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's not how I am. Right? If you get a sniffle, you get it addressed, and you go right to the doctor. Don't take much. You're going to the doctor. There are some of you, like me, I don't go to the doctor until I've got one foot in a grave and another on a banana peel. All right? Like, I am, I am really close to death. Like, hey, listen, I am death warmed over. I got to do something. And maybe I'm, I've lost consciousness. My wife just has taken me for me. Right? But at some point, we break. But it's only when we go to the doctor that we receive treatment. You know what Jesus was saying? Those that recognize that they're sick, they get treatment. Do you know what Matthew did? Matthew had been treated by the Messiah. He had been treated by the physician of his soul. And you know what he did? He called all of his friends and he set a triage up in his own house. 
And he said, everybody come. We need, I want you to see, to have an experience with the Messiah that maybe you see the condition of your heart. You see how tainted by sin you are and you understand then what it'll be like to have an encounter with Jesus and be clean again. He set up a triage, a spiritual triage in his own house. And the Religious leaders of the day had the audacity to question why Jesus would do it. Oh, the doctors for the sick, those that recognize their sickness and who respond in faith and hope to Christ. So he responds, he meets needs through his compassion. He met the credentials of what it meant to be the Messiah so he had confirmed. But ultimately, the reason why he did those things is because he was calling people into communion. Into communion. Mark chapter 7, as we close. And from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and he fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I got nothing wrong with this woman. This Gentile woman coming to Jesus and begging for her daughter to be cleansed. Jesus' response, on the other hand, let's read it. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Who are the children? The children of Israel. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. The Syrophoenician woman. In this picture, that's what he is saying to her. Ding! All of his disciples, I, I get like going, like you know how we do, like when someone gets really got, and you're like, oh, that's a good one. That's what he says. But he's making a point. Listen what she answers him. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table... Eat the crumbs of the children. I know there's enough of you to not just feed the children, but to feed me a humble dog. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now that's what Mark says. Leaving out some detail. Let's go to Matthew 15 and see how Jesus responds in its entirety. Right? Mark is a very, apparently a very engineering, like only the facts, ma'am. Right? Like he tells her to go and the demon's healed. Listen what Matthew says. Then Jesus answered her, a woman great is your faith. 
be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. We hear the initial response of Jesus and we think, man, that is tough. Jesus calling a woman and her people dogs. And in truth, Jesus was at that time in his ministry focused on the Jews. He was in Galilee. He was focused on the Jewish born, the birthright, the I am of the house of Abraham, right? Those people, right, of Israel, the descendant of Israel. He was ministering primarily to the Jews, actually exclusively to the Jews. And here comes this Gentile who has the audacity to ask him to stop what he's doing and heal his daughter. And he responds in a way that a Jew would absolutely respond to a Gentile. I ain't got time for you. I'm called to the house of Israel. This is my ministry. But what he's actually doing is he is identifying not just to this woman. Because I believe this woman already knew. He's identifying to his disciples what the community of God now looks like. This woman says, yes, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the children's crumbs. And there's enough. And if you've ever seen my kids eat, you know the dogs have plenty to eat, right? The kids make a mess and the crumbs go everywhere. And the dogs love it. We literally, t- just yesterday, had brought my Labrador in the house to clean up green beans, right? Like that's what happens. And so she says, there is enough goodness. There is enough healing. There is enough power in you, Jesus. To not just meet the need of one people. To not just meet the need of one person born to one family and the descendants of that family. You are great enough to meet my need. Listen to this. Listen to this. I wrote this down. Although the gospel came to the Jew first. And it did. It came through the Jew, through Jesus, right? It was a Gentile that first recognized the extent of the community of faith. Why did he respond the way that he did? So that they would see the woman's continued faith and they would recognize that this is no longer about what, who's your mom and who's your daddy. This gospel is for anyone who would respond. And the response is specific. It's a response in faith. Matthew 15, right? Woman, great is your faith. You're doubly unclean. Not only are you unclean as a Jew, you're not a Jew. But your faith is great. Because you recognize me for who I am. I am broadening the blinders of those that are following me to see that this just isn't a Jew thing. This isn't a Hebrew people thing. This is about faith in me. And whosoever would come can be restored. This was not 
new. His response to this woman, though it was to a Gentile, thus making it unique. This was not new. Listen to how he responded to the paralyzed man in Mark 2 and, and 2 verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saw the paralytic. Son, your sins are forgiven. What's he saying? By your faith. I, he saw their faith. He saw the faith of the four men that lowered him down. They saw the faith of the man who was there. And he said, your faith has made you well. He's not saying your mom and daddy made you well. He's saying your faith has made you well. To the woman with the issue of blood with reference in Mark 5. 2 verse 5. Or, no, yeah, 5 verse 34. And when he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. To Jairus, the temple official, he told him in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. You see, it was always faith. But it didn't make an impact until the Syrophoenician woman came begging in the same faith that God granted. And her daughter was healed. The curse of sin was lifted by grace through faith. And what's amazing about this is once we've been cleaned, once we've been purified, y'all, it doesn't matter how much sin... It doesn't matter what we do. The curse of sin is gone. It's been removed in Christ. We've been made new. We've passed from death to life. These miracles are awesome. They are cool to study, but they are not the point of the New Testament. The New Testament is not, hey, people that are crippled can walk. It's not people that are demon-possessed can be undemon-possessed. It's people that are dead can be made live. This is the point. And this is what Jesus is driving at. Woman, great is your faith. You see, only the Messiah can truly reward faith. You can put your faith in a lot of stuff. The Jews put their faith in, in their heritage and in their upbringing and in their history. There's only one reward. Only one thing that you can put your faith in and be rewarded. Because some of those same people, those people that were the religious elite, they came asking for signs and miracles too. But they came in a different perspective. They didn't come in faith. They came looking for faith. They came looking for proof and substance. Mark 8, 11 through 13, and we're finished. Mark 8, 11 through 13, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. What were they asking for? Hey, we saw what you did with Jairus' daughter. Hey, we saw what you did with the leper. Hey, we saw what you did with all of these other people. We saw the messianic credentials that you've met, but I want you to give me a sign. What have you done for me lately? And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Those that would respond in faith would, be, would enter into community regardless of their birthright. But this demonstration caused him to sigh deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. 
He left them and he didn't just leave them. He got in a boat again and he went to the other side. So the faith was rewarded with community. The disbelief and the skepticism and the prove it to me gods only received greater isolation. So those that respond in faith are rewarded with closeness to Jesus. But responding without faith will only lead further to faithlessness. This is what Jesus' miraculous ministry was about. Drawing people closer to himself. The question is, and this, and this is the question with any miracles, right? As soon as somebody starts doing miracles, you're, you're skeptic. Skeptical, I am, right? Oh, yeah, sure, you made that whole building disappear. Sure, right? Are we going to meet the miracle of the transformation of our life with the skepticism of the Pharisees? I don't really believe, God, you can make me clean. Or would we respond like the Syrophoenician? Would we respond like the leper? Would we say... If you're able, if you're willing, I know that you're able. And when we come to him on his terms, in humility, and see the restoration of our souls. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?